This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Goals. From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapinoe's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair. Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signals the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Event Dynamic specializes in maximizing revenue and increasing attendance. I'm Travis Apple and I'll be your host to this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business or for those individuals that are in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career path, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week, very few individuals can say they helped a team move to a new venue or help with a new logo, but our guest this week can say they've been a part of that on several occasions and with some prominent entities. I'm excited to have the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the New York Jets, Fred Mangione. Fred, welcome to the show. Hey, Travis. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Thank you, Fred. You, you've really had a fun and, and certainly a productive career, and I'm excited to get and dive really into that. But, you know, a lot of cool ventures you had a part of. And, you know, so you grew up in New Jersey, went to college in New Jersey, for the most part have lived and, and worked at teams very close to Jersey. So, I'm sure you're one of the, the most popular people, first and foremost, in Jefferson, New Jersey, uh, given you've always had some of the coolest jobs and that teams are, you know, and people are fans of. But so first and foremost, how has it been to stay in New Jersey, kind of around friends and family your entire career? Well, like I always say, sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good. Um, I've been very, very lucky to stay in this marketplace. You know, I, I've always, besides just – Growing up in in New Jersey, New York tri-state area, knowing what New York means and the the balance of power with all these teams and arenas. I mean, you you the competition is nothing you're going to have in any other market. But on top of that, um, it also really brings out your competitive side and and the business and what happens in New York. You know, you talk to some markets and they joke around like, I think we've called and knocked on everyone's door possible in this market. We don't know what to do. Well, that's never going to happen in this market. So um, for me, it's been important. But but again, I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to stay. I've been offered, obviously, opportunities to go to some other places and, and move. And whether the timing wasn't right or it was just wasn't a part of my career. But um, um, And it's really been about the relationships. A, a relationship is what got me to the Nets, and it was a relationship I had that got me to the Jets. So um, And there were relationships that were local. So, um, again, I think – I've always had a desire to stay in New York area, but if the right opportunity, but 
but first and foremost, I, I've just been very lucky to be able to stay here and, and go through my, my career at different levels and really at different entities, which is tough to do. Yeah, no, and Fred, I, and certainly appreciate the, the transparency on that. But, you know, what I always say is like, you know, yeah, there's probably going to be a little bit of luck. But if you put yourself in a good position, you're, you're going to surround yourself with good people and have great opportunities, which I'm excited to dive into your career. And, you know, so as you grow up in New Jersey, you, you enter college, you decide to go to Centenary University. You had several degrees. You played basketball. You even go back to receive an honorary doctorate later on in your career. So, you know, going back to that time, why did you decide to go there? And how did that experience in, in college lead you down the path to the, you know, your time in the sports business? Well, I, um, you know, I, I looked around, and, again, it was more circumstantial of where I went to college and what, it, you know, um, my, uh, my, my mom raised me and my brother as a single parent. And um, I, I kind of always wanted to stay local just for her. I had a younger brother um, who I knew I became more of a father figure to him than probably a brother along the way. So um, I knew I wasn't really going to, um, you know, aspire to be a, you know, a division one college athlete that was going to take me to the pros. So I always knew since my jump shot wasn't that great, I'd probably be any other side of the ledger and being a front office. But I was lucky enough to, again, stay local. It was more, you know, I tell people all the time because of the field I am, they're always asking me, what did I study and how much sports management? And I said back in that day, there was no sports management classes there. But I, I learned the business attributes. I learned public speaking and I learned economics and I learned accounting and finance and business and, and business law and stuff like that, which helped me give me the tools to bring to the business side because I always felt to the sports side that is I always felt because if I didn't get into sports, I was going to need some kind of tools to get me somewhere else. And I always give that advice to kids because I feel like sometimes they all go all in on this industry. Um, and even if you're lucky to get in it, it's not for everyone. So I, I felt it was important to, um, but a lot of it was family driven at the time because of the circumstance my, my mom was under and, and give me the ability, you know, I, I, I played, you know, a couple of years of, you know, D3 basketball and got that out of my system. But then I knew it was time to grow up and I had to worry about, um, you know, where life was going to take me next. And, um, you know, but again, a lot of that was driven by just, you know, supporting um, my mom because I felt for everything she did for me growing up, I had to give the same back to her. Nah, that's a great, great story. And so what, uh, what position were you? I was a shooting guard, but okay. not so much shooting. So, you know. <laughs> what, so, you know, a, a lot of our listeners maybe even went, went on to play in college. You're pointing, you know, maybe a D2, D3 school type thing. But, you know, what are – and then certainly got into this business. What are some things that you learned just playing basketball, not only growing up, and you kind of mentioned your competitive nature, but, but then also in college. What are some of those things you learned? Well, look, when everyone goes to college, right, it's a, it's a community that comes together from all different forms of life, like where you grew up, how you grew up, you know, people on their own, people with, you know, you know, great financial backing with their families, people who, so you learn a lot about life. And then when you throw everyone together on a, on a sports team in college, you know, it's definitely not what it is today with everyone, you know, doing Zoom calls and workouts and everything prior to get there. So it just, it just taught me a lot about life and being on your own and, and, and how to, how to be a leader and, and what you needed to do to, you know, break through whether you, that support came from, you know, the bench and supporting your team, which in my case was a lot of that, um, or, you know, just, um, you know, playing and, and leading by example. And, you know, look, they always say a lot of people in our industry and salespeople usually made good athletes because they had that get up early, work out, dude, they have all those attributes 
with what you need um, in this industry and the nonstop competitiveness of getting better. And, um, you know, so for me, it was just, you know, it, it, I went to a smaller college. So it was like, how, how can I stand out, you know, and, and kind of be a leader in the pack and then hopefully take that into my professional career, you know, um, in the future. Well, Fred, I, I've never had the chance to actually play basketball with you, but I'm sure you're not giving yourself enough credit. I'm sure there's some listeners out here that are like, no, he's he's drained a couple threes in my face. But, uh, <laughs> you know, well, Fred, I appreciate we talk, that. <laughs> we talk a lot about in this business of, of working your way up. And, you know, you kind of talked about it there as, you know, gaining leadership skills. And, you know, that's certainly what you've done. You, you kind of started it in, at the entry level and worked your way up. And, so you graduate college, you start working in the Arena Football League, minor league hockey team. So, like, how was that experience for you? And what are some of the key learnings you took from some of those, you know, minor league facilities? Well, I, I think those were my best year because you just get to learn everything, right? You get to learn, you know, sponsorship. You get to learn. I mean, I probably learned PR first. Like, not that I know if anyone cared about the Arena Football team that was that was playing um, – you know, at um, at the Continental Airlines Arena. Um, I mean, the minor league hockey team was actually a a um, a roller hockey league that was in existence for a couple years and then went out. So, um, look, when I first got out of school, I did what you know what I thought was unique and what everyone else was doing in the world. You know, I sent a baseball to George Steinbrenner, I sent a basketball to the Garden, and I said, "Watch me stand out." So you, you know, I tell knocking all campaigns early on. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and then, you know, you got the, you know, you know, you got the letter in the mail, which I kept every single one of them of, you know, rejections and, you know, you know, because there were really no sales staff. There was none of that going on. There was no LinkedIn. There was, there was no way to communicate. And I tell the, the, the kids of today who are trying to get in this industry, there's so many angles to get in. Um, but I, I really, when I got out of college, once I realized maybe sports wasn't going to be my thing, I figured, I kept reading the best way to make $100,000 was to either be a stockbroker or get in the pharmaceutical business. So I went into training um, to be a pharmaceutical rep, and I was halfway through it. I was going through training at Pfizer, and I was like, I'm going to do this. I, I'm going to walk through doors. I'm going to talk, you know, all these doctors into buying the drugs that I represent. And um, I got a call one day for, a, a you know, someone tipped me off about a, a, some minor league teams that were coming to you know, the Meadowlands. And um, if I had an interest, I can go sell tickets for a, a roller hockey and, and um, arena football team making $5 an hour and 10% commission. Um, part-time, what really was inside sales at the time, part-time. And if you made it through, they kept the year. If You know, there was 15 of us in a room and the top three were going to get a job. Um, so um, I remember going to my mom and say, I'm going to go do this after I'm halfway through my training She's ready for me to get, you know, benefits and all that and get the heck out of the door, out of the house. And um, she's like, I want you to go do this because if you don't go do it, you're going to regret it. And um, she let me go. And, and it, I was very fortunate to get that support and not look over my shoulder, not knowing what I was going into. Um, ended up being number two out of number three on that and then um, ended up, you know, getting a full-time job doing that. But like I said, learning like even hockey ops and what you do with a building and how do you put a team together – Granted, it was all on the minor league level, but then I got very close to our owner, and he started to buy other teams, bought some minor league baseball teams. He bought a team he put out in Long Island, and I really – it was kind of like almost a, a minor league sports conglomerate. But, I, again, I got to touch everything, learning how to take, you know, sponsorship assets and just put them with radio and do this because it was – you know, the, the business wasn't as mature as today. And um, I, I 
those years, I think, really helped me a lot as I grew. Because you also appreciate it then when you hit the majors and you have all this and these real revenues that are around you. Like, man, this is why it's minor league versus major league. But yeah. I think everyone's got to go through it and at some level, whether it's working your way up through a, you know, an inside sales room or working for a smaller, you know, environment that'll help you get to that next step. And, and it helped me a lot. It helped me a lot. And I knew after five years of being there, I was ready to kind of take the next step. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Fred, I, I thought I knew you and certainly did enough research. But the one thing that stood out on that end is you talked about pharmaceutical. And I know a lot of listeners, you know, one, you understand money isn't the thing that is going to drive people to be in the sports business, right? Like let's call a spade a spade. You don't make as much money as you probably would do in other industries. I think you mentioned you're making, uh, you know, five bucks an hour or whatever it may be. Like how hard was that? You know, and I know your mom said to push to take that risk, but how hard was that knowing that in pharmaceuticals, you could have made a lot more money and you might've been 21 years old making six figures. You know, so how hard was that? No, you're right. And you, you have people like, look, we all, even though we say we don't care and we worry about happiness, but you have people around you, you know, who you might have graduated or friends, seeing them, you know, escalate to do jobs. And you get yeah. the looks like you're selling roller hockey tickets. Uh, what's arena football? Um, right. You know, isn't that where the Nets and Devils play? Like, you know, so, um, but it became, you know, it became more of a passion of what I thought I would enjoy long-term. You know, I tell everyone, you know, who wants to get in this business, you know, that the glory of that logo on that business card and handing them out, it kind of wears off quick. Like it's a job. I joke around people all day when they're like, so what do you do all day? Like, you know, I'm like, I'm not in the backfield throwing a ball around with Sam Darnold. Like, you know, <laughs> it, it is a business and it's to a business point that almost has a different kind of pressure to it than, than just a, a big corporation that can maybe take losses or this or being in rooms with owners going, Oh my gosh, like this is, this is what we're looking at. And, you know, I, I'm a big, proponent and you know a bunch of my team has texted it to me and sent it to me since we've been off doing now like I'm a big control what you can control guy and I always say in sports like you're controlling the environment until the season starts until the ball goes in the air the puck gets dropped or the ball gets kicked off once that happens then the market controls it and they're on the radio every day and they're telling you you're good or bad and there's nothing you can do to stop it um so but I just felt and I was still young enough, you know, I was a single guy living at home. And I'm like, if it didn't work, I just felt enough in my talents that I would go be able to find something else. Mm-hmm. And maybe if I even got this on my resume for a little bit, maybe the next time I went to the big leagues, they'd be like, all right, well, this guy was in the minors a little bit. Maybe maybe we'll let him in now. So I figured between the two, I would make something happen. You know, New Jersey is the pharma- biggest pharmaceutical area in the in the country as far as um so that's what drew me to that you know um i knew some people in the industry um that got me going but i, I did get a couple crazy looks in the beginning and but i, I just needed the support out of one person at the time it was my mom and i knew i would go from there i'd go from there yeah and i think you know a little bit of advice for our listeners on that end is right you have to have a passion for what you do and willing to take that chance and i think you know fred you mentioned it you, you had your mom's support you take the chance after working five years then in the minor leagues, you transitioned to the FIFA Women's World Cup that was played at Giant Stadium. And so during that cup, the opening match was played there. I assume it had to have been once-in-a-lifetime experience, not only working alongside FIFA, which is a huge world brand, but also that ended up being the most you know, successful in terms of attendance, TV ratings, public interest. That match alone that, that you had was over 70,000 people. Like, walk us through, how was that experience for you? 
Yeah, and and that probably, I mean, everyone looks at, like, you know, working in the NFL and opening up Barclays or anything. I mean, that experience, like, I really thought, like, clicked for me. You know, at that point, I went through the minor leagues circuit, and I felt like, let me get a big event under me. So I was called by a recruiter. Um, Buffy Filippel called me and said, we may have this job for you. I had to fly out to L.A. and and, and get interviewed. Um, I've always respected the game of soccer, played it as a kid. I couldn't tell you how many people were on the field. I couldn't tell you, you know, at this point, this is when women's sports was really starting to take off and Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain and Julie Foudy. And those were names, but they weren't household names yet. And But what drew me to it is get back to the beginning of this conversation, right? It's in New York. It's 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 on national TV to kick off the game. And literally the, the, um, the person who hired me looked me in the face and said, if we bring you on for this job, New York is the first venue. If that venue does not succeed, this whole tournament could go down because the woman were really the, the U.S. woman were going to you know keep it going, and we had to build up this excitement because look, in our industry, you always want to be pre-sold. That's the name of the game. A lot of these stadiums weren't pre-sold, and we're playing at Stamford and Soldier Field, and we're not playing in small stadiums. Right. Um, and I remember one day taking my first walk to a giant stadium. Now you got to remember, I'm working across the street at the arena. So I know all the people and, you know, they're like, well, we're going to tarp the top and we're going to, and I'm like, what do you mean tarp the top? I'm like, we're going to fill the place. Trust me. We're going to fill the place. And I really wanted it. Cause you know, and um, like that day, you know, it was kind of like Christmas. You worked literally two and a half years for one day and then it's kind of like, poof, you know? Um, so again, I got to learn the soccer industry, learned a lot of people, you know, in that business, I, I got offered some some really great opportunities from the MLS when the tournament was over, um, even at the president level as a young, young kid. Um, and for for certain reasons, I couldn't make those moves. But it, but again, it was like, all right, I don't know if I'm going to stay in the soccer business, but I was able to round it out. You know, the the um, the um, the person who was running the tournament, her name was Marla Messing. She then like tapped me one day and said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. And she basically put me on tour you know, with the team. And I, I then went to Washington and went to Soldier Field. Like, really, you wrap up your stuff. You do some sponsor recaps. You do all that. And, you know, we were all going to go out in L.A. and watch the finals. But I was I, I probably went to four or five stops because it got to the point in digital ticketing was it was today where Stanford only pre-sold about half the building. And they moved another, like, 35,000, 40 tickets the week of where we had to bring in, you know, standalone box offices, like, on the field. Wow. Just so I'm managing all that. And, doing that. And, and again, it was a great opportunity and they wanted to open up other um, avenues for me um, to do that, um, which it really did. It, it gave me, so at that point I was like, I got minor leagues, I got the pros under me. I'm good to go. I, I'm sorry, a big event under me, like the women's world cup. And I was like, okay, what's next? Um, and I got some good, I, I actually received an offer to go run sales for the Boston Red Sox, which basically was lined up, ready to go. Um, you know, I talk about her a lot so far with you, but my mother um, passed away at a very, she passed away during this process of breast cancer. Um, and she was only 48 years old and I had a younger brother. Um, you know, as I always say, going to move to Boston and work for the Red Sox isn't going to move to LA. So not, but I just felt the timing wasn't right. Yeah. Um, so although I got some other opportunities and as a lifelong Yankee fan, it was the most bizarre thing in the world <laughs> to one day walk out of the green monster and sit there in the outfield and get offered a position, you know, being a baseball buff I was, but just something, something said the time wasn't right for me. Yeah. Um, so ironically, I got offered a, a job at the Nets because they needed to get some structure. I knew some people over there. They're like, hey, I know this World Cup thing's done. I don't know where you're going next, but can you come in? And I remember the gentleman who hired me, I, I literally told him, 
I'm going to give you two years. I'll put structure in place. I'll help get you guys where you need to be. But I have some other ideas of where I'm going to go next. And those two years turned into 18 years. So it's just you, you just never know where the world's going to be. I was going to say, you know, through the FIFA experience, again, like you said, with the minor leagues, you gain such yeah. a lot of real-life experience that maybe starting out in the pros right out of college, you may not have learned. But then yeah. you, know, you transition that into the NBA, which, to your point, I'm sure there was no chance you thought, hey, I'm going to spend 18 years. So you, you end up – joining there and you continue to work your way up and there's a lot of cool stories which we'll get into with the Nets organization but you you work your ways up the ranks like why do you feel like you're so successful and help continue to help grow you internally well I feel in this business and you know look Travis you've done it in your own career right you you kind of put the stake in the ground and say I'm going to come here and I'm going to put my head down I'm going to commit you know um, to a place for a long period of time if the opportunities are there or you kind of bounce around and you're like, if I can move around every you know year or two, I could chase a title, I could chase money, I could chase different things. Um, you know, a lot of it was with the individual who, you know, a couple of the individuals who brought me in. Ironically, there was a story like while I was actually doing the minor league stuff, I was recruited once to go work for the Nets once before, and I actually took the job. And a week before I, I was going to start, I actually declined it and ended up staying where I was because I just felt like I could learn so much more quicker. Yep. Um, where I was, but when I when I took the Nets job and when I did it, I, I'm like, let me button this up. And during that time, I went through three ownership changes. Um, usually, when you go through an ownership change, no matter what level you're at, you're like, uh oh, what's that mean? And people are brought in. For me alone, I felt like, and people ask me all the time, they're like, you know, what was your biggest, you know, um, you know, your biggest thing that you love to say that you did at the Nets? I'm like, surviving three ownership changes <laughs> because it, it's not easy to do because you have different bosses that come in especially as you elevate, you're now in those rooms and you're like, uh-oh, this may not be good. Um, you're getting closer to the sun. Yeah, you know, so everyone wants to seat at the table until you have it. So, um, but I was lucky enough to, to turn into just, you know, running sales staffs and bringing it up. And, you know, at one point we were what was deemed Yankee Nets and we were a conglomerate Yankees, Nets, and Devils. For a while, our arena was going to go to Hoboken. The Devils were going to play there. We were going to start the Yes Network, and all three teams were going to play there. But the losses were just mounting up so much that the ownership group said, one of these things have to go, and the one thing that went was the Nets. Um, so, you know, we then get sold. But for a while, Lou Lamorello was running both organizations. Um, they bought in Rod Thorne, um, you know, who – today is one of the, you know, just taught me so much. You know, he's a basketball guy, you know, he's on the last dance, drafted Michael Jordan, all this stuff. But those stories, the way he told it, like you'd sit in his office and he'd just give you the time to be like, Rod, how'd you do this? Like, how'd you trade for Vince Carter? And and, and he'd walk you through it. Right. And it was amazing. It, it was amazing. And I talked to him to this day. Like he just, you know, he was actually, a, I joke around, I was telling people at the Jets, he was actually a reference on my reference sheet for the recruiter when I, when I went to the Jets and people were like, you had the guy who drafted Michael Jordan be your reference? Talk about the ultimate close. Yeah, um, but, um, I am. you know, so, and then, you know, at that point, Bruce Ratner brought, bought the team and said we were going to move to Brooklyn. And, you know, I, I was still just running sales at that point, but now got all ends of the sales business. And, um, one day we were all at home and, and a thing came across the wire that the Nets had just been sold. I got a call from my boss two minutes before it went out and it was kind of bedlam. Like everyone thought we were going to move to Brooklyn. Like I had, I had six people quit on me the following day and we didn't move to Brooklyn for 12 more years, but they felt <laughs> like just because the team was sold, um, right. what would have to go into it? So, and then the journey really began um, with Brooklyn and we had to elevate our game and go to the next level. 
um, even beforehand, what gets lost in all of it, we actually made a two-year pit stop at Prudential Center right. um, because we wanted to start to cultivate the city um, of, of taking the train to the game. So we thought if we can start to pre-sell New York and Brooklyn, even though it's it was a hike to Newark, they could take the train to the game and start to cultivate the fans because I told our ownership group, just put New Jersey in the rearview mirror. Like, we got to look at this in this expansion franchise. And I remember one day I'm like, I, I think 5% of our business follows us. And I literally thought I was going to get fired on the spot, but I had to tell them the truth. And I think we had about 6% of the business follow us. Yeah. And the draining was so much about the lawsuits and, and the arena's coming, it's not coming, it's coming, it's not coming, that we diluted the New Jersey fan base. And by the time we left, they were gone already. So we had a clean slate. And the historical side of me, um, it hurts because sometimes I feel like the new generation of basketball fans don't even know there was ever a New Jersey Nets team. I mean, people told me all the time, you guys can write a book about sales and marketing. Uh, I mean, Scott O'Neill said that to me one day. You guys need to write a book about what you did. He goes, because the rebrand you guys did was the best rebrand I've ever seen in sports. Right. And we just put that in the rearview mirror, and people forgot about Jersey in an instant, even though we went to the finals twice. Now, they, the new ownership group's done a, a better job recently, you know, bringing it back to life, but, um, you know, going a little more historical for it. But, um, you know, it was a good way. And, and the Brooklyn platform, I remember that weekend, I was, the same, I, w- I was in Brooklyn once in my life. I got in a car and – you know, I think I had the old school Garmin at that point and put Brooklyn in and just drove to this site of dirt going. Let me try to immerse myself is, in this new market. Yeah, like I just like that's how I was. And um, and I just started to learn about it. And over the course of time, it literally became our night job because I wasn't getting a mulligan from ownership. And I don't worry about revenues the next right. eight years. That's so we had to manage both staffs. We had a we had a we had a hire people from that side while we managed Jersey. We had to learn the arena business. We had to learn the event business. So um, it, it was a lot because we went from tenants to owners. And that's a big, big difference. It's a big, big difference. difference. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partners, betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you ever need more, they've simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? Bet Online has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Here on 52 Weeks of Hustle, the guest today is Fred Mangione, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing with the New York Jets. And so, Fred, you know, we talked about it, and you just kind of went on that, you know, there's individuals in this business that may be able to be a part of a move or a rebrand, and you've been a part of a couple of those. And so, you know, at the time you end up moving to Brooklyn and Barclays Center, like you start overseeing revenue and marketing. Obviously, Barclays Center put it on the map. Um, you, you talked a little bit about that transition, but then as you get and you start building out that you're starting to build the brand new brand logo, et cetera, like talk about some of those late nights, meetings with ownerships, the city, like some of those key learnings you took away from, which I'm sure is an amazing experience. Yeah. You know, the, the logo, um, part of it was probably the big one, you know, that went on for about five years in the making, you know, there's so many hurdles you have to go through. And at the time the NBA was still under Adidas. So, you know, um, and there was this guy, you know, Jay-Z who was along for the ride who, you know, got involved with that. And although sometimes we would depict it that there was a corner office that said Sean Carter on it, 
Um, but he was very involved, you know, in the logo process where, you know, his design team came to us with a couple ideas. We originally were going to go the historical route with the red, white, and blue and almost go back to the, you know, days when, when the team originated in Nassau County, just because if you look at Brooklyn closely, it, it kind of bunches up against Nassau. So it's on the tip of, and um, so we were going to go that route and I'll never forget it. We came in for one last thing and he goes, I'm going to blow this up. I got an idea. And it turned into the black and white with the subway systems. And that's where the creation was and how his guys brought it to life. And it was the kind of thing at that time, like the Spurs were, but there was some rules going around the NBA because everyone wanted to be black and white because black jerseys are always the highest selling jerseys. So we go through it and, you know, Brett, you're a mark where like we sit there. He's like, Jay, I just got to let you know, like that, like you can't be black. Like that's a third Jersey option. Like you can, he's like, who, who says I can't? It's like, well, it's rules. He's like, get Adam on the phone. <laughs> um, so the running joke is Brett calls him one day and you know, the commissioner goes, you're going to, you want me to tell Jay-Z no. Um, so as you can imagine how that phone call went, I we then that, you know, that, unveiled the fly on the wall on that. Yeah. You know, we unveiled the black and white and we took a very, very um, conservative approach of a hello Brooklyn campaign. It wasn't like we're here and you're like, we were like, we're lucky to be here. We're lucky yeah. to be in this borough. We introduced the players the right way. Press conferences and stuff we have, we're having outside of Borough Hall. Like, we literally brought it to the community. And um, I think that helped us a lot. And, look, the first year you're going to get a pass because it's the first year and everyone believed in it. And, um, and, you know, we were talking about before we started to call Travis, you know, ironically with everything that's going on in the world. But then, you know, um, Sandy hit and our first game ever at – at Barclays was supposed to be against the Knicks on TNT and we were going to have the biggest night in New York and Sandy hit and our first game ever at Barclays got canceled. You know, not many people remember that. So what a way to launch the new facility. Yeah. You know, uh, but the process of going through that and, and being, being ahead of it, I know naming rights, we hit the streets, you know, Brett Yarmark came out, we hit the streets that year he came on and I'm sitting there going, are we out of our minds selling a naming rights? But he told me, which is living me, he goes, when you're getting to the naming rights business, the quicker you get it done, because that's what the bill, no one ever called it the Brooklyn Arena or everyone, even when we were on the front cover of the Daily News saying we were getting sued or delays, I'm sure Barclays didn't love it at the time, but it's like Barclays Center is delayed, Barclays, and it just gave it, and the gentleman who, um, you know, who signed a deal for us said, the platform it gave them because every sports marketing sponsored guru in America was calling him. And when we were getting delayed, they were trying to get Barclays to buy the MetLife deal before MetLife was on it. You know, city just got done locally, but there were other big players going after him pretty hard. And we always tell the story. um, We nailed Barclays down because we used to have our assistants make sales meetings for us because we didn't have time to get to everything. And and an assistant in the office actually called Barclays and set up an appointment for the naming rights pitch. And the gentleman who took the call thought we were coming in to sell a suite. And we walk into the pitch and there's like eight of us boards. This were, you know, jerseys, the whole game. And he's like, what are you guys doing? (laughs) I thought you guys wanted me to buy a suite. And he goes, he heard the pitch and he's like, I think there's something here. And we were on a plane to London in two weeks. And you know, the rest, the rest was kind of history, but it goes to show you, you never know. I mean, an, an assistant literally opened the door for us to get to Barclays to sell the naming rights. Yeah, you know, we, we talk a lot about you never know who could be your next big customer, or your next boss, and, like, to that point, that held true. Yeah. And, and so, you know, Fred, as, as Barclay Center expanded, so did the ownership group. You end up overseeing all of business operations for Barclay Center, the Brooklyn Nets, the New York Islanders, the Long Island Nets, 
NYCH Live, uh, which is home of the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum. You're able to bring in the ACC Men's Bas- uh, Basketball Tournament, the NBA Draft, MTV Video Music Awards, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, much more. And, and honestly, Fred, I'm running out of breath just reading it. So I can only imagine, you know, you having to lead those business units and efficiency and prioritization is key in this industry. How important was that? And how did you go about prioritizing all of those different verticals? That you yeah, it, it was a lot. As we said before, when we were in New Jersey, we were tenants. Now we're owners, right? So um, there was a core of us who were who were shaped up as as shared employees, meaning you worked for the arena and the and the, and the team. And you know, look, you, there's 365 days in a year, and anytime there's not something on a calendar, you know, it's it's a it's a lost revenue. You know, that's what's killing these arenas right now. What's going on? I mean, everyone thinks about the sports teams but the concerts, family shows, WWE, what goes on that you don't realize. So for me, um, kind of like I did when I got the job, I told my boss at the time, hey, I'm going to open up this place and probably after that um, maybe see what's next. And what he did was really move me to the arena side of the business, open my doors of dealing with Live Nation, going to L.A., getting involved. I mean, we went after the concert business the way we did a sponsorship. Like we'd go to L.A. and just see all the agents and be like, I need – I need some more talent. And even though people might have been booking around us or going to the garden, every time we'd go on a trip, we'd come back with two concerts that we didn't have before we went on it. And we just took the philosophy of the of the team side and we moved it over to the arena side. Um, so that really helped me a lot. And um, and just as we got everything down, all of a sudden was like, hey, why don't we move the Islanders over? Because they can't get a new arena. Um, at the time – you know, when he's passed away, God bless him. Charles Wong said, I don't want to move the team. You know, everyone's going to go crazy if I take this out. Let's move the Barclays. Bruce Ratner was able to do what I couldn't do by building a new arena. We want to come there. So I became the leader moving, <laughs> moving over the Islanders. And just when I thought I did everything, I had to do it all over again. And then we created <laughs> New Jersey. We did this. Now, that that experiment didn't go as well as, as the, the, the Nets did for sure. But I, I really had a good three, four years where I, I, I got knee deep in the NHL um, and was in meetings with Commissioner Bettman and, you know, these, these guys at the NHL and how it works and learning about ice and the temperature. A lot of things I never thought I would know or, candidly, I really didn't want to know. But um, <laughs> but it was a great experience for me. But we really got into how we fill in these nights. You know, the, the Nets were a good team. We made the playoffs the first year. You know, when when the new group came in with Mr. Prokhorov, um, he just thought he'd spend a bunch of money and fill it up with top-tier guys, and we'd win championships. And when that didn't happen, the ownership group realized, like, hey, this arena side of this business makes me a lot more money quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's where we went into um, – he went into, you know, really acquisition of arenas, and we, we went out and bought the Nassau Coliseum. We brought on the G League team. You know, we, we put it out there as the minor league teams. It was a quick destination. So if you call someone up, you're going up the highway 45 minutes right. to get into Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, so it all made sense. It was more of a concert venue. We took the, the forum, um, what the forum became, and just really had a concert venue out there. And then we bought a couple small clubs in York. So from a concert perspective, we thought these up-and-coming bands could play at Webster Hall and some of these make your way to Nassau and eventually get to the big time and hit Barclays. So we wanted these artists to know, you know, that they went through kind of our system. So, right. um, that and, and, 
yeah, and, and it worked. So, and look, and then for me, you know, I always joke around at one time, Amy Brooks called me and said, do you even work on the Nets anymore? <laughs> um, so, um, but it, but I had a good three, four years of really diving into that business and going through RFPs and writing an RFP to get Nassau and then, you know, bring it on teams, going through the process of buying the G League team. You know, I was working on the eSport thing. I know you had... Mr. Donahue on, you know, um, on your show, you know, I was going through that a little bit with him right before I left. And then at that point, I just kind of got to a point like, I don't know what else I can do here. And I had a chance to get in the NFL. And at that point I was on, you know, I worked for two major leagues, opened up two buildings and, and recreated a logo and moved the brand. So I figured like now I get in the NFL and I'll hit three of the four major sports. Um, I don't know if I could ever do baseball like you did, but you know, okay. it's, it's a lot. So, um, and again, relationships, someone I, I knew who, who I, you know, um, Neil Glatt, who was at the league office for, you know, 15 years himself, then became a the president of the Jets. And we had some conversations and he goes, maybe it's a good time for you. Um, give me an opportunity to be a little bit more of my family and do other things. And, you know, the NFL is the NFL. So when I had that opportunity, I figured um, it was a good time to kind of move on. And um, as I always tell people, it doesn't matter how long you're at Bart. If you were part of that group that opened up that building when you're retired and your feet's in the sand and you're reading about a game there, we know that group opened up. Because you're not new in New York often. You know, Shea went to City, Yankee Stadium went across the street. You know, MetLife, you know, Prudential was, was new, but it was a building that just went up the block a little bit. I mean, we were brand, brand new. Brand new. Yeah. And that just doesn't happen in New York. And, it, you know, I know we're working, they're working on Belmont now, but, and it was such an iconic build with Jay-Z and him opening up with eight nights that, you know, it'll probably be something that's never replicated again. So I was very proud to be a part of it. No, that's, you know, Fred, we, we started off the conversation. You've been fortunate. You've been able to spend your entire career, you know, kind of in New Jersey around friends and family and with the, the local teams. And then, you know, 15 minutes ago, we talked about like, I'm sure you never thought you'd spend 18 years but now, after all the listeners heard over the last 15 minutes, it's no wonder. You were gaining a ton of experience, and you could. You could write multiple books, I'm sure, on just the meetings you had and the experience. But you mentioned you, you had a lot of opportunities come across your table. You end up going to the NFL with the New York Jets. And so you know, uh, you've now been there over three years. How has that transition been You know, from Barclays Center and, and the beast of it? Of you know, At the time, there's probably 220-plus events you know, to, now, to now the NFL. Yeah, well, the, you know, again, I joke around because my old colleagues thought, like, you know, because I'm, you know, our office is in Jersey that I get on my bicycle every day and I just drive to work. Like, I still have a 45-minute commute. And I'm still <laughs> up early. I'm still in my office every day at the same time, the same time I was in Brooklyn. And, um, look, it's been great. You know, the, the, the business itself, like I said, it, you know, it, the attributes you learn in this business, you'll take with you where you go. Philosophically, you got to bring in changes, you know, um, you know, you need to make adjustments, you, you analyze the business and see where you can make an impact. I'm always big on when you go to a new place, get a quick win. It doesn't matter what level you're at. Is it is it going in and getting a quick deal? Is it making a good hire? Like do something where you could be impactful right away. Um, so I, I looked at a couple of things and said, how can I make a difference right away? And um, the Jets were doing some things. And, look, the NFL has really grown up a lot from a business perspective. They follow the models of other of other leagues, they've, they've started to build a team, you know, in-house, they, you know, the sales and marketing teams are getting, I mean, some of these teams just, they've just been lucky because they haven't had to, you know, you send out an invoice, you're sold out, everyone's getting in line for a sponsorship, everyone wants to be a part of the shield, and as people had, you know, really other options, you know, those opportunities, people have gone other way with it with their dollars, especially, again, looking at New York, we not only have the competition of the nine sports leagues and two MLS teams and Broadway and this, 
we have competition in our own building. So that was something that, um, you know, was a little bit of adjustment for me. Um, I think I was coming from a school where if I walked the arena one night and I had an idea for a new club, a new this, I'd be like, hey, we should put this together and think about it. I think we could bring up extra revenue. We'll sell a sponsorship. We'll do this. You know, I, you know, at MetLife, it's different. You're in a pure partnership with the Giants, so you got to get together. you got to figure it out, and, and they're great partners, and we always do. You just can't move as swiftly as you can when you, you purely own the building. Um, but, look, the NFL is it, – it's massive. We play in, the, you know, the, the second, you know, biggest stadium in the league. You know, as I tell people, you can throw Barclays in the upper deck and lose it. You know, there's 82,000 <laughs> seats. And, you know, I don't call them games. I call them events because people are showing up at seven, seven o'clock in the morning. You know, I usually get to the game, you know, by, by nine and the parking lot's already packed. And by the time I'm leaving, the game is over. I usually wait another 45 minutes. The exec team gets together and we review the game and, you know, hug, cry or whatever, depending on what the outcome was. And then you're leaving and people are still there. Yeah. Um, so it's an all day event. event. Yeah, and it's a religion, and it's the way people go about it. So we got to treat it as such. But there's just so many revenue opportunities with the league and what it could do. And the Jets brand as a whole, it, the brand is is it, it's off the charts. Like it, it just it's always up there, and everything you look at the NFL, and it hasn't even had a winning product behind it. Right. So I always say, if you can get the business side humming to where it's going to be, and and the you know the product on the field comes together, we're going to be sitting on something pretty special in this marketplace because the fan base, it's it's tough when you're having anniversaries with the teams and Joe Namath from winning 50 years ago, and there's nothing in between, you know. So you, you know, we're all sitting there having anniversaries where there's only a few people in the office who can even remember the win. So so from that perspective, it 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 um it, it's a good balancing act, but um. But I, I, we believe in our system. The ownership group gives us all, everything we need to be successful on and off the field. And I think in the next couple of years, we'll, we'll definitely start going in the right direction we need to be in to be successful. Well, and to your point, you're running parallel paths with the team. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the next question I have for you is you, you've surrounded yourself with a lot of great people. You've mentioned relationships and people, and you've hired and trained and developed a lot of great people. And we talked about that even prior to getting on this podcast what are some of those key characteristics that you see that top top people are bringing to the table each and every day? No, look, everyone can be smarter. Um, they can be better at their job, their analytics, their approach to this. Um, but I, I do feel it just starts with passion and hard work. You know, look, I'm old school. I just believe in that. And I feel like a lot of people I end up surrounding myself around and people I'm using as mentors, it all starts with hard work. And, um, I've been very fortunate enough, you know, people ask me all the time, what's your biggest attribute in your career? I'm like, it's really the people. Yeah, I've done some, but even during this quarantine, the amount of people who've worked for me, who've reached out, I had a couple of people just send me notes being like, I don't know if I ever really told you how much I appreciate you. Yep. It means the world. And, you know, some people have gone on and, you know, a couple of people work for me just even during this have gotten some really, really big promotions. You know, when I left the amount of people who wanted to come work for me, um, the amount of people still call me for their advice. Like it, that's to me, um, uh, what means the world to me. And when, when I talk to people, if they ask me about jobs or anything, I'll probably show them more a, a career development of people in this business who I've developed before I'll show them a business plan. Right. Cause I just feel like that's my number one priority. And if people believe in me that I'll help them get to that next level, they're going to do everything else we need to do. Um, and even when I was, you know, interviewing for the Jets position, you know, the last part of it, you got to get to ownership. And I sat with, you know, Woody Johnson, and I remember Mr. Johnson asking me, you know, 
what are your concerns about this position? And I go, I have no concerns about the job. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything you expect and more. I have no, I will get the job done. I go, my concern is I'm going to leave a lot of really not good people. I'm going to leave a lot of great people in Brooklyn, people who count on me, people who are coming there to work for me, people who can't really stay there for me. And I go, I just got to, and he told me, he goes, the people in Florham Park are amazing. And I said, if that's the case, I'm going to be a very, very lucky man. Yeah. And I've been lucky. Uh, we, I, I got together with some great people, new relationships. For me, it was even expanding my personal relationships thing. I mean, obviously, tons of people in the NBA. I met a lot of people in the music industry, NHL, like so people. But but now I'm expanding and getting a lot of those people. The funny thing is a lot of NBA people are infiltrating into the NFL. So I'm yeah, getting a lot of old friendly faces too. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my old bosses is literally running a team, you know, as president of a team. So And, and that makes stuff even easier. But the transition, one of the things the transition was good because as you talk to people or you go on local meetings or you talk to anyone from like, you know, somebody sponsors and everything else that were with you in Brooklyn or there. So when you see them at events or anything like, you know, you know, so that helped me a lot. I didn't need to, I didn't need to know about the market knowledge. I just was able to dive right into, you know, I just went in, I'd been, you know, a couple of weeks ago was three years I was there and I told someone, I'm like, you've been here three years already? And some people feel like I've been there 10, which I don't know if it's good <laughs> or bad. And right. other people still view me as a new guy, but some of them have just said, you've dove into this whole thing so much. It seems like you've been here forever. And, um, and again, I've been lucky for that. I've been lucky to get a lot of people around me. You know, um, I did bring a few people with me over to Jets, but I kept it at a low because I'm not the kind of guy who just rips off the Band-Aid. And it was important for me, for everyone at the Jets to have the ability to, have that time to show what they're worth and do that. And you're always going to make changes and changes happen, but you know, hopefully at this point they're for the good. And like I said, my ultimate goal is to have the, you know, kind of my side of the business and sales and marketing be ready for when football's ready, because if they hit together in New York, you know, it, there's nothing, you know, better. Yeah, no. And, and I appreciate the advice, Fred. And I think that's something you know, we talked about It's like, there's a lot of people, both of us know, I know a lot of people have worked, you know, for you and alongside you and, and speak the world of you. And that's what they have always said one of the hardest working people I've been around and which I think is goes hand in hand of why I wanted you on 52 weeks of hustle. And I think all the listeners <laughs> certainly heard that of, of, you know, such a cool experience, someone that's been, you know, being able to live in the same state their entire life, ton of great experiences, ton of great opportunities to your point, writing a book one day, but you know, to close it out, Fred, I like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. So you ready for this? Let's go. So we talked about your first job out of college Looking back as you're growing up, what was your first job you ever held? I don't even know if this job exists anymore, but um, my first, first job I ever held, it was, it, was a, it was a paper boy. So, you know, slinging papers, going to people's doors, you know. I mean, when's the last time someone knocked on your door and said, you owe me 575 for your papers this week? So um, I'd, I'd get home from school. It was an afternoon publication, so I was lucky from that. I'd get off the bus, I'd get on my bike, and I'd want to – get those papers out right away. Cause then I can meet my friends down at the field and we'd play wiffle ball or whatever. But, um, but it just helped me get a sense of what's going on. And I always worked like I always, I always did something, you know, um, most of my high school, like, yeah, I played baseball my through high school and really my whole life. And, um, but I always worked at the same time too. I just, you know, um, I just felt it was important whether, whether I had to financially or not, I just, I just think it sets up, you know, good traits for down the road. I love it. I, I was a paper boy back in the day as well. So it's certainly good work ethic. If you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? 
you know, I always tell people, I remember in high school, my, my high school baseball coach came up to me and he goes, man, Jones, sometimes it's not how good you play, but it's how good you look. And he goes, I don't know which one of those two you do. So <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd look at uh, myself. But what I would say from the fashion perspective is getting back to the philosophy. I know things have changed in these days, dressed down. You know, when I first got to the Jets, I'd be coming in you know, certain time, the football guys would be like, don't even come down here like that. Like the world's just changed. But, you know, look at you today and getting in front of the executives that you've done with, with the shows that I've seen, you know, you're, you're dressing for the job you want and you're dressing for the part. And I, th- I think we lose some of that in society. You know, it's good to, you know, especially we're working from home, no one has to wear a shirt and tie every day, but I think just more dressing for the, for the job you want, not the job you have philosophy is I think something that's got to get instilled in society a little bit more. I love it. That's certainly news, to, you know, good news in my ears. Uh, I, I certainly love the shirt and tie. And, and finally, you have your own late night talk show. I assume you'll be wearing a shirt and tie. Uh, <laughs> who do you invite as your first guest? You know, I, you know, we talk about a lot, but you know, I'm definitely been my mom. You know, um, unfortunately, you know, we talked about the experience she was able to let me go have by turning down that pharmaceutical job and doing all that, but. You know, she passed away right when I was going through the the World Cup experience. To, you know, she wasn't there for the end result. You know, I remember when she wasn't feeling great, like sending her T-shirts and do all that. You know, she used to come to all the minor league games when she was only one of probably, you know, a thousand people even in the stands. But she always – so I know she would have loved experience, you know, especially the, the major league sports and seeing that. So she never really got to see it. Um, which, and when I've hit certain levels of my career, I think about that a lot. And, you know, obviously my, my kids and my wife was lucky enough to, you know, have met her before she passed. So they knew each other a couple of years, but you know, those things. So just to be able to maybe explain what's gone on while she's kind of been away, I, I think would be one there. And then, you know, if you really looked at, um, you know, the, the other side of it, it, it seems a little, cliche with everything that's going on but the other guy would probably just be you know Michael Jordan you know my, my family's had enough of me talking about the you know the last dance and everything with everything going on it's probably literally got me through the quarantine but that was my college years and everything right in front of me I mean I literally remember where I was for all those games and when I was a kid I I you know I was in high school I took care of myself twice a year whatever team was playing the Jets on Monday night. I'd go to Giant Stadium and find my way in there. And then um, the one or two times Michael came to the Meadowlands to make sure I get in. So, um, so those, but, um, but yeah, I think those are the two people. Two great guests. And, and certainly appreciate, you know, your vulnerability here, you know, on the podcast. And Fred, so to close it out, what are three key takeaways you would give every listener to be in your shoes one day? Look, I think the first and foremost is surround yourself with good people. Like I said, um, and I know you're not going to know that early in your career, but, you know, you're you're working with these people and you're with people more than you are your family sometimes. So the old saying, who are you going to foxhole with? So I think surrounding yourself with good people, you got to find a mentor. You know, a mentor as little as, as, as much as, I don't know if it happens as much today. You know, I mean, there are obviously just, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, Dr. Sutton's out there who's giving her time and doing everything the way he does. But there's a lot of them. But I think us in the industry as we grow, as you said to start, this is a way to give back. I always like to do that a lot. And um, I think it just helps them get through a lot. And I think I think people in this industry, young people especially, are going to need more mentors than ever with what's going on, you know, in, in you know, in the industry and society right now. And then the last thing is just, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, I mean, every new hire, whoever comes in and works for me, I would say, I'm like, I want, I just want you to ask 10 questions a day. doesn't matter what level. 
because I hate to hear when someone works for me like, yeah, you, you had that meeting, but you know, so-and-so didn't want to ask a question because they were nervous or right. this, like nobody knows all the answers. I asked a million questions when I got to the Jets, yep. you know, more than just where's the restroom, like everything, <laughs> because right. it, it's the only way you learn. It's the only way you grow. Um, and it's, it's the only way you're going to get better. So I, I think it's important that, you know, you, you're not shy about it. And, you know, and with that, after you ask the question, just make sure you listen because listening and taking it all in, they always say it's the first attribute of a good salesperson, but I think it's just a good attribute of a person. Yep. Listen to what everyone's saying, you know, be in a moment with them and, and, you know, um, and, and show them that you care that enough during that time. Brad, thank you. Uh, great advice throughout the entire podcast. Obviously an amazing career, ton of great stories. We appreciate you giving us the insight. So always a pleasure talking to you and, and certainly appreciate your time and expertise. Yeah, Travis, thanks for everything. Congrats with everything you had. And, you know, when you look at even the guests you've had on so far, it's from Travis Appletree, right? So you went to your network. I mean, that's how, that's how it works. You know, we could laugh, but that's how you probably said, I'm going to put a podcast together. And you got your list together no different than you probably prospected in your career. And you said, here's my hit list. Yep. And you went after Relationships, it. right? Yeah. And I bet you, if not all of them, 98 to 99% said, I'm in because of the, what you've done in your career and the way you go. So congratulations to you for that. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Again, this is Travis Apple. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Please be sure to follow the podcast and watch on YouTube. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, so follow us at 52 Weeks of Hustle. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.